It's been a couple weeks since we've been together. So one thing I wanted to mention before we go into the main topic that we want to talk about this morning is, is just kind of what we saw with Simon the Magician. We, we looked at him. We're not sure. Definitively, we can't say this guy truly believed because of how Peter rebukes him. And it kind of was a challenge to evaluate our own hearts. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, the questions that we need to ask is, is my life, is my faith real? Is, is what I'm, is the way that I'm living obviously Christian? Uh, or would people have to dissect the little minutia of my life to figure out if I'm truly saved or not? Like we had to do with Simon. So we know that he was a sorcerer. You can look back at the text and see that in verse uh, 9. It's specifically stated there. And I mentioned this uh, last couple weeks ago, that it says the text says that he mesmerized people. Okay? So he, he had them hooked. You, you guys know what we mean when we say this. He and, and it was like that for a long time. It says from the least to the greatest, they all admired him, they revered him, at least he had them hooked to some degree. Whatever he was doing, they bought into it. And it was something great. They said, this guy's something great. Simon agreed with them, certainly didn't correct them in that. And so when Peter's rebuking Simon, he says that he's poisoned by bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And likely we should understand that to mean the practices of magic that he's been wrapped up in for years. That sort of thing is creating this bitterness and this bond of iniquity. I mentioned this last week, but I think it bears repeating. The Bible never is complimentary of magic, of sorcery, of divination, of witchcraft or mediums or anything like that. In fact, God instructs his people many times do nothing, have nothing to do with that kind of thing or with people who practice those kinds of things. Here's just a couple of examples. Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14 clearly points to witchcraft and sorcery as, as abominations. That's the word that's used there. The penalty of death was to come down on those in the Jewish community who practiced those things. There was pretty serious. Paul in Galatians 5 verse 20 includes sorcery as a work of the flesh. And he says there that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. John in Revelation 21 verse 8 speaks of sorcerers. And he says that the lake that burns with fire and sulfur is their portion, not the spring of water of life, as he mentions in verse 7 of that chapter. So there's lots of ways that the world tries to make this kind of thing, sorcery, magic, acceptable to us. The world tries to make it common, normal. So we need to be, we need to continue to be discerning as Christians. We need to continue to be cautious when it comes to the spiritual realm. And because we don't just see these things with our eyes, it doesn't mean that they're not real and that also means, though, that we can be kind of lulled into complacency and to go down roads that we ought not go down as God-fearing Christians. Paul reminds us, Ephesians chapter 6, what does he say there? He says that there is a spiritual battle happening. And he tells us to put on the different pieces of the armor. 
this this wasn't just a joke he was saying this wasn't just a for instance in that day and age he's talking about christians at all times everywhere he says this is what you ought to do to be engaged and to be prepared for the battle there is a spiritual realm presence that we just can't see with our physical eyes peter in first peter chapter 5 includes in that spiritual realm that we can't see an enemy who would love to steal and kill and destroy now, I don't think that this, this kind of caution eliminates imagination. I think that we can still uh, have creative thought as Christians and be uh, expressive in those ways. I think we can do that, one, because Jesus and the New Testament authors talk about spiritual aspects in very positive lights. You can think of angels in the New Testament especially. You can see their role in the physical realm, but they also are dwelling in the spiritual sense. Keep in mind, though, every time you see an angel in Scripture, they are simply messengers of God. They don't have their own agenda. They don't come in and do things, weird things that they shouldn't. They come as ambassadors of God. Messengers, literally, angel just means a messenger of God. Angels are not what we should be looking for, right? Their job is simply to point to the one that we should be looking for. So if you remember, I mean, just think about the Christmas story that we've just talked about and celebrated. Think of all the angel appearances in that story. You've got the wise men. You've got Zechariah. You've got his wife, Elizabeth, Mary, Joseph, the wise men, shepherds. They're all confronted with angels. And every time, what does the angel do? The angel expresses the message to them from God. Not their own, nothing else. So we have to be diligent with what we put in front of our eyes, with what we put in our minds, especially those of our children who are greatly influenced in things with this uh, sort of thing in mind. But here's a a positive that we can draw from bringing it back to Acts chapter 8 with Simon. Here's a positive thing that I want to mention again. Even though the people of Samaria, it says, have been hooked by Simon's magic and who he was, his persona, they've been hooked for years. When the gospel comes in, strongholds are destroyed. And people are set free. That's the beauty of what we're talking about. Now, that's Simon. Now we want to move into what we really want to get into today, and that's the idea of receiving the Holy Spirit. Because that's what goes on in Acts chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. So those are the the verses that we're going to read this morning. You can follow along. Acts chapter 8, 14 through 17. And then we'll have a word of prayer. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, We want to understand this, and yet I know that there are some listening and plenty of people in the world 
who, who know things logically and still fail to believe them. And I pray that that's not what happens to anyone listening this morning. Because what we see here leads to something. What you do through your people in the Spirit does something in us. It doesn't, it's not just this mental ascent that we understand and therefore it's true of us. No, there's an experiential part of this that we need to see and Lord, that we need to not shy away from. And so I pray, Lord, uh, that you would do a work in us. Cause us, if, it, if by your spirit it's possible, Lord, uh, to, to remove preconceived prejudices and ideas of, of what this might mean or not mean. And instead, Lord, we just attack this, uh, this section with your word as the basis and your spirit as the guide. That's what we pray for. And so I pray that you'd use me in that way to, to, to direct, ask some questions to get us thinking, but then, Lord, to, to nestle into uh, your firm embrace that you've given us as a guarantee in your spirit. Thank you for him. Thank you for this word. I pray that we would love you as more as a result this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, my family gets on me sometimes because they'll ask me a question hoping for an answer and I don't give an answer. I ask another question. Uh, you can imagine how irritating that is. Um, but I'm just, I'm just trying to be like Jesus because oftentimes you see Jesus do the same kind of thing. Now, he wasn't trying to be irritating. Oma's family, your father's not trying to be irritating. Uh, but I hope, I hope to do in a less irritating way today, I hope to do that a little bit together because there's, there's some questions that, you, that probably popped into your head as we just read those few verses this morning. And my attempt is not to answer them definitively because... Who am I to do such a thing? But hopefully to ask some questions and get our minds thinking in a way that the Spirit uses to help us come to a biblical reason, a biblical foundation for what we believe. And so we, we look at the text together. Verse 14, we see word gets back to the church in Jerusalem that Samaria had received the word of God. So God sent his saving message through Philip to the people and it had an effect. Praise God. As I already mentioned, it was setting people free, possibly from, from bondage of witchcraft. Things were happening in Samaria, and word got back. And so Peter and John, two apostles, they go to Samaria. And verse 14 tells us that they do that. And the question is, why? Why do they go? Verse 15 helps. They came down, and they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, okay? Again, the question is, is why? Why hadn't the, the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit at that point? What's going on? Did it require the physical touch of an apostle? Okay, these are questions to ask. Uh, these are some of the things that we hope to understand better this morning and then also next week. This may be one of those situations where you're watching a show and they it's a like, can, to be continued, this may be a little bit of that between now and next week. So uh, we want to set the the thinking right this morning. 
as we get into all of this. These are, these are some things we want to understand more of. Look at verse 16. This explains, I think, a little bit more. For he, talking about the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them, but they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then verse 17 says that then they laid their hands on them and they, they received the Holy Spirit. These, these three or four verses have been the subject of debate for a long, long, long time. I don't expect that we will get it all figured out in the next two weeks. However, I do think that Scripture is here, the Spirit is in His people to help us come to grips with some of these things. There's been a lot of explanations of what's going on in these verses. And it seems like depending on where you land can filter you into any number of different denominations on what you think about some of these core things that are going on in these verses. So this morning, I'm not, I'm not attacking these verses as a Baptist pastor. I'm attacking these verses as a student of the Word of God. And I want you to join me in that. We, we want to be that, right? We want to understand the Word of God for what it is. It would do well to us to consider these things from then a biblical standpoint. And so, so that's the aim for today. That's my hope and my goal for today is to approach this text and this topic to, with two things, with scripture in our minds and the love of Christ in our hearts. That's what we want to do together. And so with that in mind, you can see in your notes, if you picked up some of those, there's some blank spaces there. The, I just succinctly want to explain the prevailing views of, of what's going on in these verses. This isn't an exhaustive list. Uh, there's probably more and even some variations of what are mentioned, what I'm going to mention here. I'll try to, to kind of go slow so you have a chance to jot down a couple of notes. But that's, that's what this, that section in your notes is for. The first, first one is that some people say that the Samaritans that were here, that had heard the preaching, some people say that they were not actually born again under Philip's preaching. Their hearts were touched by the message. Okay, so something had clicked. There was an awareness of something that they needed and didn't have, but they weren't actually born again. And then it wasn't until John and Peter came and laid their hands on them and prayed that they trusted Christ then and then immediately received the Holy Spirit as hands were laid on them. Okay, so they weren't actually born again when Philip preached. It wasn't until Peter and John came that they were saved and then given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, some some say that the Samaritans were truly saved under Philip's preaching, but then in a, uh, a separate and sub- subsequent experience, they received the Holy Spirit. And that's a pattern that every believer should uh, seek for today. This often, the sub- subsequent experience of receiving the Spirit then oftentimes is supplemented by other gifts of the Spirit like speaking in tongues or performing miracles or other manifestations of the Spirit that we see legitimately happen in the book of Acts. Third, some say that they also were truly converted under Peter, Philip's preaching uh, and were baptized in the name of Jesus, as we saw, but in a, a, a rather unique move here, God withholds the gift of the Spirit until trusted apostles could come and verify that what was going on in Samaria was actually a work of the Spirit 
and then confirmed it by the laying on of hands. The purpose in doing that sort of thing would be that it would ensure the continuity between the church in Jerusalem and the church in Samaria, that they were believing the same things, and it would guard against division that we see Peter and Paul write to the churches about in many of their letters. Fourthly, some say that these believing Samaritans were really born again, and they really did receive the Holy Spirit when they were saved under Philip's preaching, but that it wasn't until Peter and John came and laid their hands on them that the spiritual gifts and manifestations of the Spirit were given to the church in Samaria. And we see many of those gifts referred to by Paul in his letters to some of the churches. Now, again, this is not an exhaustive list. There may be some that I've missed that are uh, maybe some that are kind of phrased a little differently. But a lot of times what, where we fall here filters us into believing other things about Scripture. And, and I, don't want to, I don't want to be misunderstood in why I bring up these differing views. It's not to argue. It's not even to draw lines in the sand and say, well, I believe that number one, and if you believe number two, we're done. It's not for that. Please don't understand it that way. It's not for any of those things. It's simply to understand the prevailing views that have been explained through the years so that we can then think biblically about how to apply these things properly, both in our church and in our personal lives, because it filters down all the way. So how do we do this? How do we go about this properly? How do we begin to figure out what's going on in Samaria with the gift of the Holy Spirit? Another aspect of this discussion involves, I think, how we understand biblical genres. Now, we talked a lot about, a lot about genre in the book of, when we studied through the book of Psalms. There's a lot of those um, kind of represented in the book of Psalms. And, and so what I mean here is, do, do you view, do we view the book of Acts as primarily theological or do we view the book of Acts as primarily historical? Which genre does this fit in? Is Luke recording these events so that Christians down through the ages follow everything that happened exactly? Now that is described as being prescriptive. That's a prescriptive way to view the book of Acts. Everything that happened in that time frame that we have recorded here should prescribe then how we believe and act and function as a church. Or is Luke recording these things simply as a narrative to capture these events historically? That would be more referred to instead of prescriptive, that would be descriptive. He's just giving a description of the events that took place in Jerusalem and beyond in this time. Well, if you, if you can imagine, that actually opens up an even bigger conversation when we just think about Acts in general. Is everything that happens in the book of Acts supposed to be mirrored one for one in the church today? That's a big question. It's an important one. And this is a conversation that I think is worth having, and that's why we're kind of expanding this to a couple of different weeks to try to really dig into it. I don't, I hope that my attempts in a moment to try to simplify what we're talking about, uh, you don't take as me downplaying it or disregarding what we're talking about here at all. In fact, I hope it does the opposite. I hope you, hope you see why this is important. To help illustrate what we're talking about with prescriptive and descriptive, let's just use an example from the book of Acts that we're familiar with. Okay? Think back to the selection of church leaders 
in the book of Acts. Okay, we've, we, we see, we've seen it twice and it happens three different times in the book of Acts. If you think back to Acts chapter one, right at the beginning, Judas is not around anymore. How do, how do the, how does the church appoint a leader to fill in and take Judas's place? Anybody remember? They cast lots, right? So Acts chapter 1, to, to fill in and pick a new leader for the church, they cast lots to choose. Acts chapter 6, there's, there's division, there's potential problems happening. And so the leaders, the apostles, they say, we should not give up our time in the word and in prayer. And so church, select seven servants. I'm not going to do the thing because there's a tongue twister. But select seven servants to lead in the church in this way. And, and so they give that to the church to, to pick the people. And then they, the apostles lay hands on them, confirm them, and, and put them out to the work. Acts chapter 14. Missionary journeys are in full swing. You've got Paul. He's out with Barnabas. They're establishing churches. And it says in verse 23 of Acts 14 that as they go, they are appointing elders in every church. Paul and Barnabas. Okay, so in the book of Acts, just in the first 14 chapters, we have got three very different approaching approaches to choosing church leaders. So the, the question naturally comes up, well, which one is right? Which one should we be following today? Well, if we view the book of Acts as just prescriptive, as it's got to be a one-for-one back then in the church today, we kind of are running into some, some problems here. Well, which one is it? Doesn't, not one of those instances says this is the way to do it. Not one of them says don't do that anymore. Do it this way. It's just three different ways that are done and used. But if it's only a descriptive explanation of what the church did in that time, is there anything in the book of Acts that the church should continue doing today? Well, okay, think back to that situation of how the leaders were selected. If it's that way, if it's three different ways in the book of Acts, maybe we need to go to other parts of Scripture for some clarity, right? That's that's one of the steps of good Bible study, I think, is to look to Scripture to help us understand Scripture. Because I think if we just, you can see already, if we were just to demand that everything they did in the church in the book of Acts, we do today, we're going to be uh, all over the place. Are we supposed to cast lots to pick a new deacon or elder? Are we supposed to vote? Are we supposed to just have the other ones put hands on them and pick themselves? Where do we go? What do we do with this? Now, in this instance, specifically, um, we never see Christians casting lots after Acts chapter 1 with replacing Judas. I mentioned that when we preached through that area. We don't ever see casting lots happen again. Okay, so that's probably a method that we should say, probably not going to use that one. There may be a better way. All right. So how do we know in scripture what's prescriptive and what's descriptive? How do we know what's just a description of events that Luke is recording and what are principles or commands that we're supposed to follow today? And again, this is a big question. 
And I hope to impress on you this morning that it takes intentional study and humble hearts to try to find the answer. You've probably heard us say from the pulpit here uh, on multiple occasions that we want to let Scripture interpret Scripture. That's a good, like I said, a good process for Bible study. What does the Bible say about what the Bible has already said? What, what I mean is, is that many passages and principles that we find in Scripture help us understand, interpret, and apply other parts of Scripture. And if we believe and we do, if we believe that God's word is true, every word of it, then there won't be any tension or at least any disagreement between itself. But that doesn't mean it's easy. So thinking about the selection of, of church leaders, let's give another example. Uh, flip back to Acts chapter 2 for a second. This is a passage that we're probably pretty familiar with. Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. <clears throat> Sounds like most of you are there. Acts chapter two forty two, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, tending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So, here's the question. Let me pose it in this instance. Should Christians everywhere, and in all times, devote themselves to the things that are listed here, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer? Should all Christians everywhere at all times do those sorts of things? Should Christians everywhere and at all times sell their possessions and belongings and distribute the proceeds to any, to all as any had need? Two questions. Well, can we find these things in other parts of Scripture. So stay with me. In answering that first one, should they always devote themselves to, to these sorts of things? I, I think we affirmatively can find plenty of other parts of Scripture that, that say, yes, those things are what Christians everywhere ought to be doing. Ephesians chapter 4, specifically. Uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, specifically. We can find all of those elements found there. Jesus himself modeled and taught on prayer and left his followers with the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that we're supposed to continue in. We're supposed to continue remembering these sorts of things. You're supposed to continue devoting yourself to the apostles' doctrine, to gathering together. Hebrews tells us, don't forsake that. So there's other places in scripture that affirm that. Yes, Christians everywhere and at all times should be doing those things. What about the second question that we asked? Well, wisdom and scripture still needs to be applied. Flip forward to Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now, with the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. 
but they had everything in common. And you can keep reading uh, there, and it says the same same sorts of things. So now we've got Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 that say basically the same kind of a thing. Yes, everybody had all things in common, and they were sharing it together in the church. People sold land, personal property to provide for other people in the church. And so that, that continues us with the question, is this how the church ought to function one-to-one mirrored today? Is that what we've got? Well, what happens when we continue reading the, the writings of Luke, even the writings of Paul and Peter, or the rest of the New Testament? You might be surprised to learn that after that instance in the book of Acts chapter 4, we don't see that same kind of model portrayed again. We don't see people selling portions of their property to provide for uh, other people. We don't see it elsewhere in the New Testament or in the book of Acts. In fact, when Paul is talking to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, he tells the Christians at Corinth to give. He says, systematically, determine what you're going to give. He says, faithfully, do it all the time. Do it generously. And he says, do it cheerfully. But he doesn't instruct them to sell personal property to do it. Now, it's possible and maybe even likely in that time that some people did in order to help be generous and to follow the prompting of the Spirit. They might sell something in order to give, but they're not told that they ought to. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, he says, challenge the people in the church like this. He says, command those who are rich in this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly blesses or who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And he says this, command them. So here is a command in regards to giving. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. So you've got the idea of generosity applied multiple times here. But again, he doesn't say, tell them, tell those who are rich to sell their stuff to give to those who don't have. If you remember in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, uh, Peter is speaking with, with him, with Ananias, and he says, look, when you owned this property, wasn't it yours to do with what you what you wanted? And when you sold it, wasn't the proceeds yours to do with what you wanted? It wasn't that they were selling and giving. It was that they were lying about how much they were giving, both he and his wife, Sapphira. So Paul doesn't, doesn't tell Timothy or the Corinthian church. He doesn't command them to sell their personal property. He commands them instead to be generous and be willing to share. Peter, Paul, John, and plenty of other New Testament writers, they don't tell Christians, look, go back to the pattern of the early church in Jerusalem. They don't, they don't tell them to do that. They just say, be generous with what God has blessed you with. And so if we're gonna, if we're gonna say that something is imperative in, a, for us as Christians today, all Christians everywhere in all times should be generous and willing to share. Now, does that mean sometimes we might sell things that we have in order to provide for somebody's needs? Absolutely that can happen. And if the Spirit is telling you to do that, you absolutely ought to do it. But I don't know that we can, from Scripture, 
command every Christian everywhere to sell what they have and give it to the church to disperse to people who are in need. God gives you that command as a Christian individually to do it. That's what is supposed to be normative. That's what's supposed to be prescriptive for Christians today. Generosity, love. Sometimes, and we mentioned this in preaching through those parts of Acts, sometimes that means sacrificial giving. Absolutely. Can I, and this is something that we evaluate as families, maybe as church, as a church sometimes, can I give up that bottle of Mountain Dew at the gas station or that fancy coffee? And can I set that aside in order to give to the benevolent fund at church or give to care portal that helps families in need? Can I sacrifice in those ways? Maybe I do need to sell a car that's just sitting in the driveway. Maybe I can sell that and give that money to an organization, to a person in need. Absolutely, those are right things to do if the Spirit leads us to us. But insisting that every Christian everywhere do it isn't something I think we can demand of them when considering the whole counsel of God's Word. Now, this is the kind of study that we need to really apply to what's going on in the book of Acts with the giving of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to dive in deep to that next week. I hope you'll come back and join us with it. But we've actually already done this kind of thing in the book of Acts together. Peter does it. Think of Acts chapter 3. This is uh, the, the, the Pentecost has come. Right, the, the sound of a mighty rushing wind, the tongues of fire, the, the, the Jews in Jerusalem are speaking in other languages they didn't know how to speak before. And Peter gets up, and some, remember, some people thought they were drunk. And Peter gets up to explain. He says, that's not the case, for sure. Here's what's going on. And he quotes the prophet Joel. And prophet Joel prophesied that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh And he uses some conditions. He says, regardless of age, he says, young and old, regardless of gender, he says, men and women, regardless of your occupation, he says, slave or free. Regardless of all of those things, the Spirit's going to be poured out on, on people. And Acts 2, 21 says, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Regardless of gender, Regardless of occupation or social status, regardless of age, you call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. He talks there, Peter does, about David and how David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ all the way back in the Old Testament. He says that's what David was talking about. Christ crucified and Christ resurrected. He does it again, Peter does, in his sermon after the lame man is healed. He gives another big sermon and he quotes the prophets. He quotes Moses as a prophet. This this is important because Moses was a man who Jews respected highly. They would have revered. So scripture, as we've already seen, scripture was informing the way that Peter understood other scripture, but also the way that he spoke just like scripture ought to inform the way that we speak and ought to inform how we live out what we believe. If that's all you take from today, I'd be happy. Scripture ought to inform the way we speak and how we live out what we believe. 
And if we apply this study principle just one more time together today, we see how the authority of Scripture shines through yet again. Let's flip back to Acts 2 again. Acts 2.38. This is, these are some of the, uh, the most exciting verses in these first few chapters in the book of Acts. Acts 2, 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now there, we'll talk more about this next week, but there it seems like the moment that you repent and are baptized... You receive forgiveness of sins in Christ and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing else that needs to be done. Turn to Acts chapter 3, verse 6. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Verse 14 through 16, but he's preaching now. He says, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Are you seeing the theme in the name of Jesus? Look at chapter 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In fact, we see this truth preached over and over and over in the early church. In their preaching, in in Peter, in Philip, in Stephen, in Paul, in so many others going forward, we see this emphasis on the power of the name of Jesus, the authority of the name of Jesus. Fifteen times or more, we see this in the book of Acts. Them calling their hearers back to who Jesus is and the authority that's found in his name. Talk about something that's, that's prescriptive for believers today. I think this is it. This is what we ought to believe and practice about the same truth, that there is power, that there is healing, times of refreshment, forgiveness of sin, boldness, and fellowship in the name of Jesus Christ. Scripture, as I've tried to emphasize this morning, Scripture agrees with Scripture, and that should lead us to the same truth about who Jesus is and the power of his name. John, the disciple, he sums this up well in the final verses of his gospel. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Here's here's the key. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Life in his name. That, that sounds really nice, right? We think about uh, life. People want to live, don't they? People want to live. I mean, look at all of the, 
the commercials that inundate us, right? That's the phrase that was so popular years ago. Well, you only live once, so just do it. Uh, so many commercials, if, if you wear this brand of clothes or drive that kind of car, then you're really living. You know what I mean? This is because we want to live. We want real life. How does John say that we get it? He says we get real life in his name. How? Why? By believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, he says, you may have life in his name. In his Son, in Jesus, you can have life in his name. Peter's message to us as listeners in 2024 rings True here, just as much it did in eighty thirty at Pentecost. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's that's a beautiful message to take to a world that needs some hope in this day and age, isn't it? To go and to say, by believing in his name, you can have life and you will be saved. There's no question mark there. When when Peter and, and Stephen and uh, Paul are out preaching to lost people, their enemies even in Samaria, there's no question like, I think this will happen if you, if you do this. They go with confidence and boldness because they prayed for it before, and they go and they preach the name of Jesus, and people's lives are changed. People are delivered from bondage like we see in Samaria. And it's a beautiful thing. And so as we just kind of slow down uh, in our study this morning and next week, I hope that this, this sets the stage for how we understand the Spirit of God being imparted to His people. And I hope it sets the stage for us being uh, gracious and humble in, in how we do that. Because I think more than having all of our T's crossed and our dies audited and our theological stance and being immovable in that, I think that we need to understand humility and grace. With one another, certainly, with the world, and that we might, as the believers, as I mentioned, they prayed for boldness, even when they were persecuted and brought out from prison, they prayed that they might continue to have boldness in his name. Brothers and sisters, that's what I pray for, for for this church congregation, for you all. That Number one, that you would have life in his name. No other name gives it to you but the name of Jesus. But that you would have life in his name, and that life that he gives would so fill us up and so spill out of us that it keeps going to our family, to our neighbors, to the school board meetings, to the, to the basketball games and the softball games and the track meets and, and all these places that we interact with people, that the life of Christ in us would spill over into them and give them life through his name as well. Let's pray together. Lord, there are some times when we have more questions than answers. I don't know that that's all bad, Lord, but today we see, and I hope we're convinced, that whatever answers we find, that we cling to, Lord, they're found in your word, and their truth for all of us. 
And that takes some wisdom and that takes some discernment and we pray for that, Lord. But I pray first and foremost and most of all, God, that we might believe what John has said we need to believe. That Jesus Christ is your son and that by believing in him, we might have life in his name. Lord, and that you might impart your life in us, in your people. And Lord, that that life may then be be what we proclaim, that beautiful message of reconciliation to the Father by Jesus. Lord, and we thank you for your spirit that convicts of sin, that leads us to truth. Lord, that gives gifts to his people, to your people. I pray that we would understand, appreciate, and glorify your name all the more as a result of understanding more of these things. Help it not to cause us to puff up in pride and haughtiness, but instead might it humble us that we could receive your word and that we might be recipients of your truth at all. We thank you for this beautiful message that you have given us to hear and to understand, and I pray that we would believe in Jesus' name.